you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast that kicks the tires of the strange and the unexplained. And we're going to talk about uh, something close to my heart, something near my old stomping ground in North London, Highgate, right, Ben? Yeah, Highgate, yeah. So, like, I think with world events as they are and following on from a previous episode, I always said that I wanted to have a look at the Highgate vampire story, which was, uh, I would say that it is, you could class it as a story which really revolves around, I'm not sure it's mass hysteria, but certainly hype and press involvement and a whole load of people perhaps chasing wild geese. But when I really got into it, I found out that there was a lot more to it than might meet the eye. And, yeah, I thought I would tell you about it because it's fascinating. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, no, I, I remember we we did talk about it as potentially being featured in the episode that we did on Mass Hysteria, but sounds like it was good we didn't because it, it sounds wider than it that. It is wider than that, yeah, yeah. And it involves two really strong characters who I will come on to later. And I'm pretty well versed in the lore of um, a lot of these sort of sightings in London and, and none of this had crossed my path before. So I was pretty interested. But I, it, it, the story really starts in earnest in February in 1970 and... The Highgate, sorry, the Hampstead right. and Highgate Express, running a headline that it, it says, "Does a vampire walk in Highgate?" And this, I think, we can trace to the very first moment where people start getting their interest peaked. So this is like, I, I think this is fairly typical of the press at the time. Like we've spoken about. Um, uh, things like the Enfield Poltergeist and stuff, where the press are paying for people to go in and investigate. And this is a sort of a, a high time between the early 70s and the early 80s when newspapers are really yeah. enjoying these stories. And we've spoken before about, you know, how it's a distraction from perhaps the Cold War fear and all that sort of thing. I also wonder in that time period... It, it was the start of, you know, more serious, let's say, or mainstream movies yeah, featuring the kind of paranormal and Oh, absolutely. Whereas, whereas they'd always been kind of the B-movies of the 50s and 60s, you'd, you know, you had movies coming through which were taking it a bit more seriously or, or at least to higher levels of entertainment. Absolutely, budget. absolutely. And, and this is an era where you're quite right, we have things like um the wicker man which are making horror a little less um abstract i think is probably a great way to put it um but this area of highgate there's there is a backstory to this 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 headline isn't the sort of isn't where it starts that's where it starts for the people who were involved and, you know, the, the, the people who were looking on and reading the, the headlines. But for years, this area was plagued with kind of inexplicable 
events and sightings. Nothing to do with me, uh, I'd like to say. No, no. Well, this this is definitely before your time <laughs> okay, because good, good. Uh, and it's and it's around the Highgate Cemetery. So, in 1967, two adolescent girls walking home along Swain's Lane, which uh, sort of cuts across the front of the cemetery, they appear to have witnessed they they claim sorry to have witnessed the dead rising from their graves by the cemetery's north gate which is a fairly extreme claim to make but that was nevertheless what they said and another teenager uh who was living nearby woke one night and claimed that something cold and clinging was holding onto her hands and it left prominent marks the next morning and the background to all of this was that there were various random reports from unnamed people, as far as I can find out, uh, talking about a tall man in a hat walking in the area. Oh, we've heard of this before, right? We have, yes. But I, I think in this different case, hat. it's just a different hat, yes. Before, before you go on to that, I actually have quite a funny story of a friend of mine who saw a ghostly apparition in Highgate Cemetery. Mm. <coughs> so I didn't know about this. So for those, those, for those of you who don't know, Highgate Cemetery is quite famous um, and you can go uh, for tours of it. It's, uh, it has some famous buried inhabitants. I guess the most famous is Karl Marx is buried there, right? So but, but a friend of mine, Alan, uh, who... Uh, him and his friends got very drunk one night and decided for a laugh they'd go and see Karl Marx's gravestone in Highgate Cemetery. <clears throat> so it's quite, it's quite a high-walled thing. So they managed to scale the walls and get into the cemetery and in their drunken stupor they were walking through uh, and then my friend Alan saw this glowing green wasn't like a mist he just said one of the gravestones started glowing and pulsating in green and he oh just my god and him and his friends all saw it they all panicked and just ran like hell rescaled the walls and headed home sober the next day they t- they did a bit of research and apparently some of the gravestones in highgate cemetery are painted with luminous paint <laughs> so all he'd seen is the natural phenomena of a gravestone that was was painted in luminous paint but in their drunken stupor and their you know highly sensitized kind of scared state they they started to believe that this gravestone just started to kind of pulsate in a kind of green glowing aura to be fair that is pretty terrifying why are they painted with i've got paint? no idea I, I i could never find out why why people would do that unless unless it was you know maybe some people have got a, a kind of uh, a wicked uh, sense of humor a wicked sense of humor that they want to keep going once they're dead i don't know wow gosh i had no idea but that <laughs> that is really interesting i love that story um well going back to the early 70s yeah so th- this this man in a hat was seen melting into the cemetery walls. That's what the, uh, the the eyewitnesses say. Right. But it didn't stop there. The situation got a bit nastier 
And by the early months of 1970, animals were being found dead and their bodies were found drained of blood and they had lacerations to their throats. Right. And this is where, on the 6th of February, our first protagonist enters the scene, David Farrant. And he was a local man and a self-proclaimed magician. Right. And he wrote in uh, the Hammond High newspaper, or rather he wrote a letter to the Hammond High newspaper, that he had recently glimpsed a grey figure he was certain was supernatural and a belief shared by several concerned residents in the letters page. So he begins this thread where he starts lending credence to the fact that he has seen something peculiar in this right. in, in this cemetery so th- this kind of uh accelerates the ball rolling from the teenagers who who had had experiences that's right, right. that's right and all of this uh, it, because don't forget the newspaper have already set out their editorial stance here with their their headline does a vampire live here and so this is all putting kindling to the flames but his his account um it's not it's not the only one and this is where the second person comes in so he has a rival and this is a man who is a self-proclaimed exorcist a vampire hunter and he calls himself a bishop of the old Catholic Church. Right. And his name is Sean Manchester. Right. And he writes a letter to the same newspaper, the Hammond High, and he says, it became appallingly apparent that the people of Highgate were not witnessing a harmless earthbound apparition, but a vampire. And so this is the first time where we start attaching people with whatever their credibility is and it's a self-proclaimed credibility they begin to start taking this very seriously and this is all happening in the letter section in the Hammond High newspaper so so if I go back to the the chronology of this out of these two men the uh magician yeah Farrant and, and the Exorcist and, Manchester. And yeah. the Exorcist Manchester. Did they... Who got the letter in first, or did they kind of both come at the same time? Do you know? No, no. Farrant gets his letter in first. And he's but the magician? He's the magician, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then... I, I, sorry, can I go back as well? Because you said he's he was what, a... a he claims to be a bishop in the was it early Catholic <laughs> the, church? The what is old that? Catholic Church. What, what, what is the old Catholic Church? Do we I know? don't know, and I can't find out because um, it's it, it isn't particularly clear. <laughs> isn't uh, the Catholic Church the old Catholic Church? <laughs> uh, you you would think you would think. Well, later on in this episode, I will be playing a a. a a piece of an interview that he did where he talks about this vampire and it was conducted by the BBC in 1990. Right. And also David Farrant uh, created his own 
I guess you would call it documentary, but it is in the loosest possible sense of documentary, where he talks about what he saw. Um, it has to be noted at this point that I have reached out to the remaining uh, person alive, which is uh, the Reverend Manchester, right. for an interview. And I haven't had the most positive of responses. So I'm not certain he wishes to talk about this any further. And right. we we might, we might find out why as we go through the story. But what is... <laughs> you upset him, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think I upset him by approaching him in the wrong way via a social media channel, <laughs> although I thought I was perfectly polite but anyway I, I, i've told you you've got to be careful when you're bashing the bishop <laughs> God. i apologize <laughs> i apologize immediately for that oh dear it's turned into an episode of viz <laughs> it really has <laughs> all right carry on um, <laughs> literally but, but as as with all of these things the newspaper reports turn into television and this reaches something of a fever pitch by friday the 13th of february 1970 and i don't think that date is a mis- you know is, a is an accident. Yeah. yeah um thames television ran a program about this unfolding saga and what they are reporting on is the fact that both manchester and farrant declared that they would destroy the evil figure, as they both put it, by stalking Highgate. So they, the, they, they were cl- they, they're claiming they're going to become North London's answer to Van Helsing, is that what That's exactly saying? right. That's wow. exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so Farron, at this point, is he's rubbishing any notion of, um, well, it's quoted as him saying, uh, a real Hammer Horror-style vampire. So he he is saying that that isn't what's happening, whereas Manchester is saying, yeah, I think that is exactly what's happening. And he starts referring to this case as, uh, well, he, he talks about this entity as a satanic being. And right. and so what we, what we now get is another level of... Uh, sort of interplay we've kind of got we've got two factions we've got Farrant who is you know claiming to be a magician and saying this thing is real but it's not like a vampire that's going to come and fly in through your window as a bat and we've got Manchester who is sort of carrying with him the credibility of being like this exorcist and this religious figure and and he says it is. And then we get the television involved. So we've got the paper involved. Now the television are involved. You can see why TV got involved. It's got it's got loads of the it's got fantastic tropes, you know, especially the character Manchester, you know, being you know, this religious connotation to him and you know, thinking about it in in the more kind of traditional, let's say movie-esque tropes of a vampire and somebody who's kind of coming at it from a a more alternative edge it's it's perfect right absolutely it's perfect yes and and today i think perhaps like thames tv is it's obviously a mainstream thing if if um 
if you were around in the UK in the nineteen early 1970s, you had two, possibly three channels if you were very lucky. And so there aren't all the plethora of digital channels and whatever. And I think perhaps the reason that this comes about is because it's a it's a lively topic. It's almost like you can make it as an extension of the and finally section on a news piece. Um, but it it turns into something much bigger. So by the end of that program and within hours of the broadcast, the police realise that there might be this might be a problem for the cemetery. They assemble a police cordon around the cemetery but dozens of self-proclaimed vampire hunters turning up with homemade stakes and coming from all over london break through that cordon and start searching the cemetery for this nosferatu you have this old movie trope gang you know almost a pitchfork carrying gang trying to get after this vampire that's that's perfect isn't it absolutely yeah absolutely and i think you know it's a really for anybody who is a bit bored on a friday night the notion of going down and looking for a real vampire something which you know you've kind of seen in the movies and you know it has a it has a romanticism to it and the idea it's it's the sort of the absolute epitome of turning up with pitchforks it it, you know to to run out of town the thing that you don't want and this is exactly what happened later that year so this is this is february and this this doesn't calm down for a good while the the newspapers are all over this and the news of the world start getting involved because of course yeah so so again for uh listeners outside the uk the news of the world was you know one of the biggest tabloid uh newspapers it it came out on a sunday i guess a little bit you know it's the american version a bit national inquiry right or is that is that too extreme no no i think that's right although um it had a reputation for doing good undercover journalism so it wasn't it wasn't completely you know vampire hunting it did uncover a lot of you know political scandals and stuff like that but it 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 was known for doing it with a uh a tongue-in-cheek yes and a bit of cheeky chappy approach that's right that's right but it was it was always um like you you would it was known as the news of the screws amongst uh colloquial british because it also had a lot of stories about you know who was sleeping with who in showbiz and all that sort of thing it was a bit of a tittle tattle but i don't i it wasn't i don't think you could say that it was fake news it was it it was sensationalist i think it's probably the best way of putting it um but later that year in august 1970 a woman's century-old remains were discovered desecrated near her grave and then a few weeks later farron himself was arrested 
in a nearby churchyard carrying a crucifix and a wooden stake. <laughs> and he ended up suing the News of the World because the News of the World ran a story where they claimed that he would be a would-be cat killer. So they had kind of deviated away from the vampire story, which was kind yeah. of rapidly running out of steam because there wasn't a vampire found. And they were beginning to focus in on these two characters. And Farrant was the first one to feel the wrath, basically. Yeah, well, you can understand why. Again, you know, if you if you're if you're arrested, you said for wandering around with a with a kind of stake and a yeah uh, and a crucifix or cross, you you can you can see why as a tabloid journalist or news editor you might just go hey hold on a second these guys are more interesting than the story absolutely yeah (laughs) yeah and they give it life beyond where it's gone because by august yes there are people who are going out it's a bit like today where um i suppose after shows like most haunted and ghost adventures lots of people go ghost hunting and they take with them various things which are you, you know k2 meters and stuff i have yeah. one myself but it's fairly uh, i would say innocuous it's fine isn't it you just you go to an old hotel and see if you can see anything in the middle of the night whereas i think it's a little bit different when you've got a lot of people turning up to a cemetery in central london and some of them really believing that they're going to you know essentially exterminate a member of the undead it can get into a very dangerous situation quite quickly so well like like you said that the the mass hysteria episode we did there was that other story in london about um the the incident that happened in hamsmith where the hamsmith ghost where somebody did end up in the dock and uh charged with murder because they thought they'd shot or taken out a ghost which turned out to be somebody just wearing white clothing you know absolutely yeah what you're describing here in highgate has has all the the forerunners of ending like that kind of story if you've got mobs of people you know i just wonder what these mobs are expecting to do they're wandering around a graveyard you know, God forbid they saw anyone wearing a cloak who was slightly pale. They they probably have had for them, right? That, yeah, that's right. Well, I, th- I I think with this, what we've got is a really interesting mix of we've got um, sort of young teenagers claiming to have seen, as I say, the dead rising from their graves. <laughs> yeah, we have numerous sightings of. A tall man in a hat who appears to melt into the cemetery walls. That's a actual quote from an eyewitness. Um, we've got another teenager who claims to have woken up with something cold and clinging on her hand, which left prominent marks. And then we've got all of the dead animals, which, yeah. uh, you know, it it seems like they have some kind of weird way of um, becoming deceased. And then we get the press involved, we get the television involved, and we have these two characters. And I think that is a real, really interesting lesson because it's these two characters that drive this whole legend for at least the next 50 years. So it has to be said 
the news of the world and various local newspapers they do reduce the amount of reporting on this but then it reaches another kind of fever pitch but this fever pitch is the full stop on the end of the story because in 1973 Manchester claims to have driven a stake through the vampire's heart in what wow. he what he calls the nearby house of Dracula which is in Crouch End. <laughs> well, really? I used to live in Crouch End. Where is the yeah. House of Dracula? Um, so the House of Dracula isn't readily searchable. <laughs> I have tried right. to find it, and it, it, is, it isn't really... The, addre- the address isn't given. Um, <laughs> but I that... think what's, what is interesting is... These two characters who have a different view on it, um, I think it's best to hear from their own mouths what they think they saw. So the first clip we'll play is from David Farrant, who created a documentary on uh, what he saw. And this clip is him explaining to an interviewer what he thinks he saw. Have you ever seen this vampire? I have seen it, yes. I saw it last February and I saw it on two occasions. What was it like? It took the form of a tall, grey figure, and it, about eight feet tall, and it seemed to glide off the path without making any noise. Well, he, he, he certainly sounds like he believes what he's talking about there, Ben. Oh, yeah, he absolutely believes what he's talking about. Whether he believes it because he then released a book about it or whether it was a personal, um, you know, belief, it's really hard to know. But that is, a, I think, a pretty interesting first-hand account. And I yeah. think what we should do is contrast this, that, that account from Farrant, with um one from sean manchester so this is an interview that sean did in 1990 with the bbc where he very specifically talks about coming face to face with essentially what he describes as a proper i guess to use the parlance that we used before a proper hammer horror house vampire let's take a listen well, the Highgate Vampire, when I first uh, looked upon it in its tomb in the Lebanon Circle, in the centre of uh, the old Highgate Cemetery, looked like um, a several-day-old corpse and um, had, in fact, been resting for some century or so. Not in Highgate Cemetery, but uh, it had been in the cemetery for a, about a century, but it, it was some centuries older than that. Um, but in fact, it looked like, uh, I suppose, a three-day-old corpse. And um, I realised that this wasn't a being, as, as, as we know it, either dead or alive. This was a demonic form, a manifestation from the um, dark world of uh, the devil. Mm-hmm. Why did you realise that? What made you think it was a vampire and, and not just a three-day-old corpse? Because it could leave its tomb without displacing anything. It, it could manifest... Did you see it doing that? Um, 
it was witnessed by many residents, passers-by, by many people in the general area. Um, on one occasion when it was by the north gate and the headlights of a car um, dissolved it, uh, it passed through the, uh, the iron railings with no problem. Um, a corporeal body or a living person can't do these things. Only a supernatural entity can, as it were, metamorphose. Kind of raises more questions than it answers that clip to me. It does, doesn't it? So this is why I think it's quite interesting to um, put those two accounts of these two protagonists against each other. And what I, I'm I'm absolutely not saying that Sean is making this stuff up. But what is interesting is when he is pressed just a small amount yeah. on what it is that he has seen, he slightly buckles and yeah. then attributes it, uh, attributes sightings to unknown random yeah, th- other people. I thought that was interesting because it, it was almost like, like you said, once put under pressure, I have to have an explanation. Do you know what I right. mean for that? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, I and the place he refers to in the nearby Gothic house is that is that the the Dracula house in in my old stomping ground at Crouch End. Yeah, well, so so the his conclusion to this story, which he does later relate in 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 his book, is that he he tracks this entity down whilst it's on, I I presume a killing spree, and then. Um, and puts a stake through its heart. But the evidence, the evidence is sorely lacking. And I think that's the the thing that is so interesting about this, because on the surface of it, we've got a great story and all of the legend and lore, it all starts from the letters page in a local newspaper. And then from there, it becomes really quite flimsy and i just think that is fascinating for like anything that we are looking at in current times i think with with hindsight when you look back at this we've got two people who it's not clear what their motivation for making anything up is and again i will say it and i'm not saying either of these people are making it up but you have to look at the actual evidence presented and what came out of it and what came out of it was a couple of books and a 50-year history of um, rivalry and almost uh, petty point scoring between these two people which really only served them well because it meant that every time like that interview there from um 1990 which is you know 20 years after the initial event he's still making it i'm pretty certain that interview is from radio one so he is on primetime national radio talking about this 20 years later and i don't know with all of these things you have to kind of follow the money i'm not saying that either of them became rich off the back of it but it's a great story to to nail your credentials to the mast with. Let, let's let's just go back a little bit. So this guy, 
the Reverend Manchester. Yeah. He he's wondering about Highgate Cemetery at night, I assume. Didn't really say, did he, in the interview, whether it was day or night. I no, but I would I would assume night, yeah. He goes into which sounds like a kind of crypt or somewhere like that. Yeah. He says he sees this body lying there. A corpse, yeah. A corpse that looks kind of three days old. Yeah. Um <laughs> but but he uh, claims uh, it's a century old. Okay, claims it's a century old. Is he then saying he he did the old classic drove a stake into its heart and somehow it it reallocated to Crouch End or I, I got no, a bit confused at that point. No, no, I think so what he's saying at this point is that he finds this corpse which looks like it's freshly dead and that it is able to reanimate and get out of wherever it is in a crypt and move around. And when pressed by the interviewer on whether he has seen this activity, he then says that other people have seen this activity, but these other people aren't there to give their eyewitness accounts. So he is asking us to take for red that these other eyewitness accounts are both credible and real yeah and then later on in 1973 he then claims that he has killed this vampire in a house in crouch end the address of which is not available or at least not readily available that i've been able to find and this draws a line under it but all of this goes into his book. But again, back back to him being in the cemetery. He's looking at this thing, which he believes is, you know, thousands, over a thousand-year-old uh, uh, vampire. No, a uh, hundred, a hundred. hundred years, sorry. Yeah, yeah. hundred-year-old vampire. Um, so what does he do? He just kind of goes, oh, there's, there's the vampire and, and leaves, it seems. Well... Uh, there's, this interview takes place over. It, there's a, there's a good thirty five forty minutes of it, which right. um, I don't think are necessarily worth going into. But um, what he is doing at that moment is he, from his point of view, he's trying to work out who the vampire is and how he can defeat them. And this is a moment of revelation where he discovers this corpse that looks fresh and then he's establishing these eyewitness accounts that it does move and can get out of its surroundings and and then i suppose what one might argue is that um to put an end to it he then needs to find out where you, you know find a safe place to get rid of it like he isn't um for want of trying that i haven't got his book but it is over well it's very nearly 150 pounds second hand on amazon and it's out of print and i can't find a pdf version of it so i'm just going on uh reports and and interviews the reports yeah but but the whole his whole experience with um finding this vampire tracking it down and killing it are all explained in his book I, I, he, I, that vampire would struggle now to be a vampire in Crouch End. 
you know, because it's all it's all hummus and vegan. So there's no way you'd survive as a vampire in Crouch End. No, that's true. Yeah, well, also, as things are going up market, like the, the chance of you being able to buy a Dracula house, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. it's going to be difficult, right? Yeah, yeah. It would be, well, geez, yeah. No, that'd be incredibly difficult. <laughs> well, it just gets more intriguing. So it takes him, do you say, three years to actually finish this thing off in Crouch End, basically. Yeah, yeah. But it it's interesting what you you say because, like, I think it's worth pointing out that Crouch End and Highgate today don't really represent the Highgate of the 1970s. Yeah. It was that the, the cemetery itself, as I understand it, was in deep neglect. Yeah. There was... There was rampant vandalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then one of the interesting things I found out was that um, there were supposed uh, pagan sex parties happening in the middle of the night. It was... Yeah, there was rumours of that kind of stuff because there are kind of lots of kind of, you know, I guess what you'd call mausoleum places. You know, it's, it's, it's surprising. I mean, now, you know, certainly I think it's the west side of the cemetery or I can't remember which side it is, but you know, there are guided tours now that you pay to go around. You have to pay to enter, to look around it because, you know, as I said, in that cemetery in general, there's the graves of um, Karl Marx, Oscar Wilde. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a heap of very famous people who are, mm. uh, who are buried there. So yeah, but I think you're right. I think back then it was, it was a very different, uh different different set state of affairs obviously yeah yeah well it's kind of i think it's noteworthy that in 1978 david farrant he ran as a candidate in hornsey for his own party which was the wicker workers party and and his platform was free sex and nudity uh restoring the wiccan creed outlawing communism establishing state brothels um, and strangely, leaving the EU common market. <laughs> um, and and so I think what yeah. he he ruined it with that last bit for the Crouch End crowd. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. But I think that sort of tells you like that this this whole theatre of the vampire and this. Um, sort of going head to head with somebody else it really plays into the characters at the time and and what that part of london was at the time there's um and were both of these guys trying to find and eliminate the vampire or is it just Bishop? yeah no they were they were but um as you heard in that clip david farron thought that it was it was real, but it wasn't like a satanic entity. He rather comes at it from the point that it's a ethereal being and that it can be it can be dealt with. He's obviously, um, as we know from that report from um, the News of the World, he is definitely using um, what we would say are vampire hunting techniques, but but. Um, Manchester is very much on the this is a satanic 
thing. He comes at it from a, a I suppose that's the that's the way to put it. He comes at it with a a religious tag on all of this. And that yeah. religious tag with um either his own brand of Catholicism or even probably largely mainstream Catholicism it talks about like this possessed uh entity of a of of a dead soul. And do you think that might tie into their rivalry? Because you know, like yeah. you said, one one sounds like a very kind of a, a, a Catholic based religious uh, angle to him, and the other one sounds very pagan. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and what they are battling for, uh, I think, is not necessarily um, who kills the vampire. But it's it's about column inches and it's about um, pr- sort of pushing their own belief systems. That's really what it comes comes down to, I think. Wow! Um, and it's it's, it's, incre- it's an incredible tale. Uh, just 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 the characters that you're describing are just incredible. Let alone, you know, the idea of a, a vampire let loose around North London. Just those two characters and the, the way they're interacting with the tale. It's just, uh, they're brilliant. Well, it, it, could have, it could have got further. So in 1973, um, the year where Manchester claims to have killed the vampire, and interestingly, the year that the Wicker Man was released as we were talking about the farrant and manchester challenged each other to what they called a magical duel (laughs) which was supposed to take place on parliament hill but but it never happened well did it though if it's magical we might not know about (laughs) it that's right we might not know about it but this is where we get right into the realms of harry potter i mean i know it's it's, it's, yeah oh what like, and did they say how they were going to duel? No, how, how, no. how a magical duel works? No, this is this is part of like this kind of dissing of each other right. that that comes through, and it, it, it isn't clear who challenged who first. But they said they would have a mag- magical duel. Now, I think it's, what's it's fast- like East Coast West Coast. Yeah, it rap, is rap rap world back in back in nineteen seventies, but with with vampires yeah absolutely so you've got farron on one hand who calls himself a magician and from everything i've read it's a magician with a small c not a large k not, not like not and so, well it makes me think that you know a magician is a magician right they are um they're a showman and uh they you know paul daniels never claimed that he was supernatural he, he was just a clever person right so, who, so is far is Farron more in the merlin uh well angle is that what he means or well, a wizardy magician it, or are you not sure i'm not sure i'm not sure like uh, i think magician can mean many things whereas manchester really believes that he's got you know the power of some deity on his side and i think this is where this comes from this is like what we've what we get at 1973 is before manchester has killed you know killed the vampire they're competing 
for space and um, credibility with places like the News of the World, who are kind of growing really bored of it. And the the TV show is now three years old and the police cordons have gone. And so you've got these two men who had this glimpse of something that they could hang their career hats on, potentially, both of whom get a book deal. This is obviously years before um, you can do self-publishing. So both of them uh, have secured a book deal. And at the time, like when you talk about all of the the fictional material around so it isn't just um the wicker man um we've got like uh stephen king i didn't know this he wrote a short story called crouch end in 1980 so no so there's a lot of um kind of uh law l-o-r-e being put on this place and and And, and also what you were saying in terms of them uh continuing to stoke the fire it gets pretty hard once you've said no no i've just killed you know a few years ago i killed the vampire you're kind of killing your own story really aren't you in a way there's nowhere to go from there is there no no absolutely no there 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 isn't and um i think perhaps at the time like i think we've spoken about how the media have a role to play in this. And I don't think it's a, um, I don't think it's, it it, it could be construed as perhaps cynical. Like this is the period with the Enfield poltergeist, don't forget. And the Enfield poltergeist is largely fueled by money from the coffers of papers. They are just trying to sell print and the, the Enfield poltergeist, you have a lot to back it up. You've got, um, not not only have you got eyewitnesses in terms of the family, but you've also got police officers who were there and saw it. So there's if you were a newspaper editor at the time, yeah. you've got a lot more that you can put on your front page. There, what there's we, phenomena that's there, whether it be real or fake. There that, there was right. something to see. That's right. You, you can you can write PC blogs saw this and saw that. And you can take a photograph of them and put them on your front page. And that person, wherever they're interviewed, is going to stand up to their story because they believe what they saw. What you've got with this, when we go back to the beginning, again, I say you've got basically their children. They're spoken about as teenagers, but none of them are 18. They're talking about these fanciful notions of people coming back from the dead in their graves and people um girls uh having these strange marks left on their hands in the middle of the night and all of this is very much like you know an emo's wet dream this is exactly (laughs) what you would say if you wanted to draw attention to yourself and these two men are just changing the focus of the lens away from these eyewitnesses who don't have an awful lot to say and also their kids onto them and then what they are falling out over is whether they can you know come up with a credible and long-lasting story yeah um so it, you could it, you could also you could almost hear the media response in that uh, bbc interview um i mean it sounded like nikki campbell to me i think it probably was but 
you know, it, it in that BBC interview, you could almost hear the interviewer going, please say something like, you know, ethereal entity for us. Do you know what I mean? Mm, so yeah, there, yeah. There, there could be a quiet little snigger, but, you know, keeping a serious face to it. Um, so, you know, everybody seems to have been, you know, feeding off this like it was you know fresh blood for a vampire basically yeah no absolutely and and it's quite interesting when when i first started digging into this story i i like the only remaining person alive is sean manchester and the first piece of writing i found from him was um he wrote um actually quite a nice uh published eulogy uh, for Farron when when he died and oh, that's well that's a lovely end to that yeah story, so so he was you know he he was saying so because the the two men didn't speak um I think I think if my notes are correct the last time they spoke was 79 the the two of them together although early newspaper um reporting has the two two of them photographed together because uh, you know that was the correct setup. You know the, these these two vampire hunters, yeah. but they, that would but they quickly fell apart. But um, Sean Manchester wrote a very um, reasonable piece about how uh, people misunderstood David Farrant, and he didn't have anything against him, and he wished that they could have put their differences to bed. But the the reporter who is um, who then writes an article about this for Vice is talking about how he had tried to get an interview with Sean Manchester. And uh, this is in uh, the early to mid-2000s when he's trying to do this. And he gets directed to something called the Friends of Sean Manchester Society. And that is exactly who I was referred to when I wrote directly via um facebook messenger to sean manchester i was directed to this society as well which is now a facebook group which had a number of questions which i wasn't prepared to answer for 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 various reasons they're incredibly personal and it's basically screening out anybody who wishes to take either an impartial view or um where like if you listen to the tone of that bbc interview just a little snippet we've played um you can tell that the interviewer is being slightly playful and there's a bit of a snigger to it there is a little bit of a snigger which i don't i'm not sure that's you know that's obviously not the way we would have approached it but later on um sean gets more and more defensive he never uh he's never combative but you can see that he isn't happy with the way that it's playing out and i wonder whether this kind of um this this approach which had been taken obviously by reporters who just wanted to get the story out of him and and get the the details because you know back in 1990 like obviously there aren't such things as podcasts and whatever and um this interviewer is trying to get out of him the juicy 
details of you know if you really have come across a vampire you know tell us how it was when you killed it how did you stalk it how did you do all that and and he just keeps um sub-referencing himself and his book and um he doesn't really have any great answers and i wonder whether the reason why he is behind these barriers now is it's as i'm saying that this is one of those cases where we can look at it with two different points of view we can either say there was some peculiar goings on at highgate cemetery and two people captured the imagination of various media outlets and residents of london and one of them you know got their man or as i rather suspect this is a story of people who were trying to build some credibility in their own their own stories off the back of something which sort of just appeared in the letters page of a local newspaper and i i I think it's like as we've seen it was very much of its time it's not something that could happen now because you don't need a paper or a television show anybody with a smartphone could go down there and take photographs of of anything and so it's it's interesting you you while you were talking about that about the the kind of two different approaches and it's something i think with a number of stories that we've covered on the podcast you know some of them yeah absolutely do feel so outlandish but they you know if there is a grain of truth it suffers from the way the media or mainstream media maybe does approach them and i totally get why you know if i was a tabloid news editor or you know making a a mainstream tv uh program or doing a a bbc radio interview you would go with that tone wouldn't you because that you 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 know you you haven't got the time or the space or the editorial lean to do anything else right right absolutely whereas and that often makes me think with these kind of stories even the ones where we get you know skeptical on you you kind of go i I often think but god if there was a grain of truth in that and like you said these guys got swept away with all the attention and it suited the media to then feed off the back of it and then back it suited these guys because you know they're a potential for for books and book deals and potentially movie deals all kinds of stuff documentaries that you know do you almost create this circle that so confuses the truth i mean it's a bit like the ufo phenomena is now do you know what i mean it's like it's why we don't probably cover it as much on this podcast as as maybe we should because it's almost impossible to kind of filter you know to use a remote viewing term filter out the noise from the signal yes oh a hundred percent absolutely it is and and interesting with this highgate cemetery uh phenomena that um one of the people you know sean decides to draw a line under it by claiming to have killed the beast and that is a very convenient way of to end yeah the, oh there are no more sightings well that's because i killed it how well, did, did it fa- end? did farron uh, uh, acknowledged that it had been killed by manchester or not 
Not really, no. He wrote his he he brought out his own book and his tale is a little bit different, but it's more whimsical. Um I've again the book is phenomenally expensive and only available secondhand, so I haven't bought it, but I have managed to grab uh, pages of it from here and there. And no, he he doesn't directly contradict Manchester, but he doesn't go along with um, the tale that Manchester killed it. No, no, he 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 talks about it as something much more um, ethereal. It's not so much a uh, you know, it's it, in his mind, it's not so much a corpse that you can um, stab through the chest. It's right. It, it's a little bit more complex than so, that. So he's not buying into that that kind of vampire trope that you can put a stake through its heart or well although he he was carrying one he was carrying it yeah yeah but what where he differs i suppose is the fact that he doesn't believe like like i said he doesn't believe that this is like a satanic um being which um is sort of comes from the devil itself he thinks of this as much more um how can I put it? I think he 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 believes that um, this vampire exists and that it can be dealt with, but he has no truck in running around after reanimated corpses. He's looking for something which is much more of its own entity. And perhaps I think when pushed, maybe it's um, more like something that we've encountered before. It's more like um, something which came out of um, a thought form or was just a dark entity manifesting. He he doesn't really go along with, oh, a vampire bit this caught, you know, this person on the neck and then they became this. He, He doesn't go along like I, that phrase, that hammer horror thing, whereas um, Manchester, it's almost like he's taken every part of the Dracula novel and considered it to be canon. Right, right. That's incredible, though, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I think what's great is that you have... You focused on the interesting part of the story that I like the fact in a way that, you know, the, whether there was a vampire or not seems almost irrelevant. It, it is yeah. about this relationship and development and, and interactions between these two rivals, you know, to coin a phrase and their reaction with the media and the story itself, you yeah. know, it, you you could see it as a kind of you know light not not light light in in content but a a a whimsical british movie couldn't you real real life movie and you know even the way you described manchester you know uh writing a eulogy for farron at the end it, you know you that would be a perfect ending to the whole thing wouldn't it Oh yeah, completely, completely, and and I think it tells us a lot more about the culture in nineteen seventies Britain and more specifically nineteen seventies London than it does about the existence of 
of, of real vampires. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it reminds me... I mean, I think there is more evidence uh, and doubt when it comes to the story of Jeff the Talking Mongoose, but it, 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 it has similar elements to that story to me in tone and... Uh, I don't know how to describe. It. Do you know what I mean by that? It, I it do. Kind of, yes, it's got that kind of slight quaintness that Jeff, the talking mongoose, has yes. to this this tale has as well. Oh, absolutely, and and also the fact that um, uh, we'll never be able to prove or disprove it or discover yeah. what was really going on. But but again, a bit like Jeff, I don't really care. No, it's it's the stuff that you're talking about that is the interesting bit, and I care about whether the vampire existed or not or was laid to rest in Crouch End, you know, and coming from me who, you know, lived in Crouch End for, for many, many, many years, you think I'd be really wanting to get to the bottom of it. And it's like, I, d- I don't really mind. It's what a great tale. And I'm assuming that you're not undead. Well, you say that, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> it's not red wine I'm sipping while we're sitting here. I'm telling you that much. I want to make that movie. I want to make that movie, or at least if anyone's listening, make that movie. Gets involved, obviously. It would be great, but someone <laughs> should make it. It would be fantastic. Yeah, I'm wondering who you would uh, you would cast. Who would you who would you cast as Manchester? Do you think if you could choose? Uh, Kevin Eldon. Yeah, and I I was. I'd, for either of them, I was seeing a bit of Surrey and McKellen in there somewhere. Oh, probably a I, bit too old for where this was set. But uh, no, I like. Well, I'd have Surin as um, the editor of the News of the World. Oh, good. I like that. Highgate Vampire of the movie. I was thought you were going to say Highgate Vampire of the musical. <laughs> <laughs> now that would be interesting. Um, great on that note i think we will uh leave you for this week and see you next time on the quantum mechanics see you next time Quantum mechanics. <laughs>